Hey there, Angry Faithful. I just wanted to drop in, bend your ear a little bit, get your attention. So if you're not listening, drop what you're doing and pay attention to me. Because I'm here to inform you that not only can you get your daily, maybe if you're binging it, I'm not sure, that's entirely up to you, but you can multiply your doses of angry me fuckery by paying attention to all of the platforms upon which you can find either the dulcet tones of my voice and David's voice or my pretty face and David's not-so-pretty face. Anyways, digressing, we, not only on we are on YouTube, we are on Spotify, we're on Rumble, we're on Google, Apple Podcast. We have a TikTok page. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and of course, Facebook. So if you find yourself fuckery deprived, curl up with a nice hot mug of shut the fuck up and just listen. Open those ear holes and be prepared to be cream pied like it's the first time. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Angry Faithful. Today on Psychos and Sociopaths, we're going to do a uh, English one again since I found out we're actually somewhat growing in the UK. So to our UK listeners, thank you for listening, watching, whatever you're doing. Uh, thanks for just, you know, being uh, sticking around with us, even though half the time we get like a little bit <laughs> over, over over ourselves and we just go off subject half the time <laughs> no yeah. no 80 percent of the time not half but anyways uh today we have being very um generous yeah <laughs> <to> ourselves yeah <laughs> but today we're going to go over a dennis nelson uh he was a scottish serial killer and a pe- uh, necrophiliac uh, who murdered at least 12 young men and boys between 1978 and 1983 in London. What is it about necrophiles, dude, that they gravitate towards the same thing? Uh, my opinion, and I, I actually did think about this. I thought about it actually this week. I, okay. I, didn't, I didn't talk to BC about it, but uh, I, ta- uh, I, was, I was thinking to myself, and uh, what I was thinking was the basic fact of they they had this uh, feeling with this, well, now it would be a body, and they had to go back for it to feel that same feeling. They, that's, that's how they get the uh, euphoria. That's how they get off, basically. Right. And undoing that. So that that's my theory, but uh, that's uh, th- that's the only thing I can come up with. It, it, it with, with men, I know with men, it uh, when they're doing that, uh, when they're murdering or doing uh, horrible stuff to people, raping them and everything like that, uh, they they have that power over the over the person. Right. Uh, sometimes it is for women a little bit too, but it, it's more with men because they they do the uh, the the other acts where like 
uh, what was uh, the the ripping of the breasts? If it, can you not hear yourself? I can. Um, see, I can hear that. I can. I can hear that. I hear you over my computer speaker still. So, for for those of you who uh, move the mic up a little bit more, then. I mean, it's well, not going to help with the computer, score, uh, computer speakers or anything like that. But yeah, no, I mean, do you hear yourself you hook- though? No, over no. Did you hook it up to the soundboard or did you hook it up to your laptop? Well, I took the the USB and I hooked it up to my to my Mac, but the microphone and all that is going through the soundboard. And you're using something that uses uh that has a mic for the headset. No, no, the this is just a straight up headset. Okay, but the headset's plugged into the egghead. And I mean, I can hear myself. Oh, did you turn up the egghead? Yeah, I mean that's the volume that I was using right there. See now, now. I mean, I can hear myself just fine over the egghead, over my headset, so I can hear myself. I think, and I can hear you, but I can hear you more over the computer than I can in my in my ear. Oh, okay. Why don't you just uh, try try muting the laptop? And and this happens in every episode. We end up okay, so let me let me try this here. Hold on. Go ahead and try it now. Can you can you hear me now? Say it again. Can you hear me now? I can still hear you over the laptop. That's weird, dude. Oh wow. Uh, I will. You know what? Hold on. Um. Okay, so there's that, and then. This is this is so. Right. Say something. The, okay, uh, Belarus, Belarus, Belarus. I I can't. <laughs> uh, well, it's just something we're gonna have to it. It's all right, man. Um, but we're gonna go with the early life of uh Dennis. Uh, Dennis Hentrew Nelson was born twenty third November nineteen forty five, in Frischburg. Fraser, Fraserburg, Aberdeenshire. Okay, thank God you said that because I was, I was, I was struggling. <laughs> You're gonna but... use Stephen Hawking. <laughs> yeah, I was about to use Stephen Hawking. Uh, the second of three children, <laughs> born. You're very professional setup, man. Oh yeah, professional. Oh. Uh, three children born in East, uh, Elizabeth Duth White and Olaf. Magus Max Shamer. And you can you can <laughs> you can comment on this to see if I'm saying that right because I have no idea. Okay. Elizabeth Duthy White and Olaf Magnus Mukshime. Okay. Who has the adopted surname of Nielsen. Mukshime was a Norwegian soldier who had traveled to Scotland in 1940 as part of a free free Norwegian uh, forces 
following the German occupation of Nor uh, Norway. After a brief courtship, he married Elizabeth White in May of 1942. The newlyweds moved into her parents' house. I really need to quit doing that because if, if we had a high listener rate up in the UK, it's quickly dropped because they're like, listen to this fucker over here. Either that or it's like, I can't understand a word he says because most... Well, if, I, if, I'm doing, if I'm doing the accent correctly, the only people that can understand me is going to be people from that part of the world. Yeah. So... Yeah, there's okay. that. You remember? You want me to read the early life part of it? The child. Yeah, I got it. Uh, the marriage between uh, Nelson's parents was difficult. Uh, although Nelson did not view marriage life with any seriousness, uh, being uh, preoccupied with his duties as a free Norwegian forces and making little attempts to spend much time with or finding a new home for his wife. After the birth of his third child, Nelson's mother. Uh, Nelson's mother uh, concluded she had rushed into marriage without thinking. The couple divorced in 1948. All three of the couple's children, uh, Olaf Jr., uh, Dennis, and Sylvia, had been conceived on their father's uh, brief visits to the mother's uh, household. Her parents, Andrew and Lily uh, White, who had never of the daughter's choice of husbands were supportive of their daughters uh, following her divorce and considered uh, considerate of their grandchildren. Nelson was quite uh, yet uh, adventurous child. His early childhood memories were of family picnics in Scotland countryside with his mother and uh, mother and siblings and his grandparents Ponyous light cell, which they would describe cold and doer. Is that right, doer? Uh, let me see here. Uh, doer, dower, dower, doer, doer. No, I had it right. Wow. I'm going with dower, cold and dower. And of being, uh, being taking on long countryside walks, carried on a shoulder. Shoulders of his uh, maternal grandfather, to whom he uh, practically he was practically close. Ovely Jr. and uh, Sylvia commonly uh, occasionally accompanied Dennis and his grandfather on these walks, despite only being five years old. Uh, Nelson uh, vividly recalled these walks being very long uh, along the harbor, across the uh, wide stretch of be beaches up to the uh, sand dunes, which rise 30 feet behind the beach, and onto the, yep, we're going to, we're going to Stephen Hawking this. In Veralaki. In Veralaki. Uh, he later described this, uh, this stage of his childhood as one uh, contentment, and his grandfather being great hero and protector, adding uh, adding that when, uh, whenever his grandfather, who was a fisherman, was at sea, life would be empty for me until he returned. By 1951, Nelson's grandfather's health declined, but he continued to work. On the 30th of October 1951, while fishing in the North Sea, he died of a heart attack at uh, age of 62. His body was brought ashore, returned to the White family's home prior to burial. And what Nelson later described as his most vivid child uh, uh, recollection. 
his mother weeping, asking him whenever he uh, wanted to see his grandfather. When he uh, replied that he did, he was taken into the room where his grandfather laid in an open ca- uh, coffin. As Nelson gazed upon the body, his mother told him his grandfather was sleeping, adding that, uh, that he had gone to a better place. In the years followed, the death of his grandfather, Nelson's become uh, more quiet and withdrawn, often standing alone at the uh, harbor watching the uh, herring boats. At home, he uh, seldom participated in family activities and retreated from uh, any attempts by adult family members to demonstrate any affection towards him. Nelson grew to resent what he saw as an unfair amount of attention his mother, grandmother, and later stepfather displayed towards his other brother and younger sister. Nelson envied uh, Olaf Jr.'s popularity. He often uh, talked to and played games with his younger sister, Sylvia, to whom he was closer than any other family member. On one of his solo excursions to the beach uh, to Imagoja uh, in 1954 to 1955, Nelson became submerged beneath the water and almost dra- uh, dragged out to sea. He initially pancaked, failing his, uh, failing his, uh, failing his arms and uh, shouting. As he gripped the uh, grip for air, which wasn't there, he recalled behaving, uh, believing that his grandfather was about to arrive and pull him out before experiencing a sense of tranquility. His life was saved by another youth who dragged him to shore. Shortly after this incident, Nelson's mother uh, moved out of his grandparents' home and into a flat with her three children. She later married a builder who is named andrew scott i I just missed that freaking i it i just had this thought of uh plagues and saddles andrew scott i don't know why uh with whom uh she had four more children in many years although nelson initially uh resented his stepfather whom he viewed as unfair disciplinarian disciplinarian I said that. Okay. He gradually came to grudgingly respect him. The family moved to Strinich in 1955. At the onset of puberty, Nelson discovered that he was gay, which Nelson had confused and shamed him. He kept his sexuality hidden from his family, uh, family and few friends. Because of many of the boys to whom he was attracted had facially... Factually, facial features similar to those of his younger sister, Sylvia. On one occasion, he sexually fondled her, believing that his attraction towards boys might be a manifestation uh, of the care he felt for her. Nelson made uh, no effort to seek sexual contact with any of his peers to whom he was sexually attracted. Although he later said he had been fondled by an older youth and did not find the experience unpleasant. Uh, On one occasion, he also caressed and fondled the body of his older brother as he slept. 
As a result of this, Olaf Jr. began to suspect his brother was gay and regularly uh, belittled him in public, referring to him as hen, a Scotland di uh, dialect for girl. Nelson initially believed that his fondling of his sister may have been uh, evidence of him, uh, him being bisexual. Well, that happened. Huh? I said that happened. Yeah. What'd you okay. do? I knocked my microphone clean off the desk. I'm just like, huh, okay. You hear like a big I'm I'm listening to you and I'm reading along. And <laughs> I'm 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 you know, I'm juggling this poker chip. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just flew right out of my hand. I went to go gadget and knocked the microphone right off. Hey, I'm almost yeah. done with this. We can do the arms. You can do the arm service. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As Nelson progressed uh, into adolescence, he found life in Strinich uh, increasingly uh, stifling, with limited uh, entertainment uh, amenities or career opportunity. He respected his parents' effort to provide and care for their children, but began to resent the fact that his family was poor. Then most of his peers, uh, with his mother and stepfather making no effort to better their lifestyles, thus Nelson uh, seldom invited his family, his friends to his family home. At age 14, he joined the Army Cadet Force, viewing the British Army as a potential avenue for escape as uh, his rich uh, rural origins. Okay, that sounds a little. That sounds really disturbing. It, it sounds really horrible. I mean, you were good starting out, and then it just started. What about now? Check your uh, cords on your mic. You might have just accidentally pulled it out. So Nielsen's scholastic record was above average. He displayed a flair for history and art, but shunned sports. He finished his schooling in 1961 and briefly worked in a canning factory as he considered which career path he should choose. After three weeks at the factory, Nielsen informed his mother that he intended to join the Army, where he intended to train as a chef. Nielsen passed the entrance exams and received official notification that he was to enlist for nine-year service. In September of 1961, commencing his training with the Army Catering Corps at St. Omar Barracks in Aldershot, Hampshire, or Hampshire, sorry, it's not Hampshire, it's Hampshire. Within weeks, Nielsen began to excel in his Army duties. He later described his three years of training at Aldershot as the happiest of my life. He relished the travel opportunities afforded him in his training and recalled as a highlight his regiment taking part in a ceremonial parade attended by both the Queen and Field Marshal Lord Montgomery of Ellenmead. While stationed at Aldershot, Nielsen's latent feelings began to stir, but he kept his sexual orientation well hidden from his colleagues. Nielsen never showed in, uh, and never showered in the company of his fellow soldiers for fear of developing an erection in their presence, instead opting to bathe alone in the bathroom, which also afforded him the privacy to masturbate without discovery. In 1964, he passed his initial initial catering exam and was officially assigned to the 1st Battalion of the Royal Fossiers in 
Ustenbruck, West Germany, where he served as a private. And his, in this deployment, Nielsen began to increase his intake of alcohol. He described himself as his and his colleagues as a hardworking, boozy lot. His colleagues recalled the often, or he, he often drank to excess in order to ease his shyness. On one occasion, Nielsen and a German youth drank themselves into a stupor. When Nielsen awoke, he found himself on the floor of the German youth's flat. No sexual activity had occurred, but this incident fueled Nielsen's sexual fantasies, which initially evolved, involved his sexual partner, inver in, in, invariably a young, slender male, being completely passive. These fantasies gradually evolved into his partner being unconscious or dead. On several occasions, Nielsen also made tentative efforts to have his own prone body sexually interfered with, or in, in yeah interfered with by one of his colleagues. In these instances, whenever he and his colleagues drank to excess, Nielsen would pretend he was inebriated in the hope one of his colleagues would make sexual use of his supposedly unconscious body. Following two years, of yeah. <laughs> Following you you lie there and just. Uh, he's like, I, I, I'm not gay, but here's my bottle. I'm not gay, but you know, because you're the one doing the pushing. Yeah. Unser, uh, when following his two services or two years of service in Unsenbrook, Nielsen returned to Eldershot, where he passed his official catering exam before being deployed to serve as a cook for the British Army in Norway in 1967. He was deployed to the state of Aden, formerly Aden Colony, where he served again as a cook at the Al Mansur prison. This posting was more dangerous than his previous postings in West Germany or Norway, and Nielsen later recalled his regiment losing several men, often in ambushes en route to the army barracks. Nielsen was kidnapped by an Arab taxi driver who beat him unconscious and placed him in the boot of his car, the trunk. Upon being dragged out of the boot of the taxi, Nielsen grabbed a jack handle and knocked the taxi driver to the ground before beating him unconscious. Then he locked the man in the boot of the taxi. Unlike his previous postings, Nielsen had his own room while stationed in Aden. This afforded him the privacy to masturbate without discovery. He developed his fantasies of sex with an unresistant or deceased partner unfulfilled. Nielsen compensated by imagining sexual encounters with an unconscious body as he masturbated while looking at his own prone, nude body in a mirror. On one occasion, Nielsen discovered that by using a freestanding mirror, he could create an effect whereby positioning the mirror so his head was out of view, he could visualize himself engaged in a sexual act with another man. That, that is some thought. That, yeah, that's, 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 that's some effort. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, you would ha have to work, he would have to lay down on the bed, move it. I mean, I mean, you could probably like etch it out. And like, go up, and someone's going up to. How about I just keep reading? Yeah, you're going down a road, and yeah, yeah. So, um, to Nielsen, the, this ruse created the ideal circumstance in which he could visually split his personality in these masturbatory fantasies. Nielsen alternatively envisaged himself as being both the domineering and the passive partner. These fantasies gradually evolved to incorporate his own near-death experience with the Arab taxi driver, the dead bodies he'd seen in Aden, and imagery within a 19th century uh, oil painting entitled The Raft 
of the Medusa, which depicts an old man holding the limp, nude body of a dead youth as he sits aside the dismembered body of another young male. In Nielsen's most vividly recalled fantasy, a slender, attractive young blonde soldier who had recently been killed in battle was dominated by a faceless, gray, dirty, or dirty gray-haired man who watched, washed this body before engaging in intercourse with the spread-eagle corpse. When Nielsen completed this, his deployment in Aden, he returned to the UK and was assigned to serve with the Argyle and Southern... Uh, Sutherland Highlanders at Seton Barracks in Plymouth, Devon. Throughout his service with this regiment, he was required to cook for 30 soldiers and two officers on a daily basis. Nielsen served at these barracks for one for one year before being transferred with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders to Cyprus in 1969. Months later, the, the regiment was transferred to West Berlin, where the same year Nielsen had his first sexual experience with a female a prostitute whose services he solicited. He bragged of this sexual encounter to his colleagues, but later stated he found intercourse with a female both overrated and depressing. Well, there's oh. a lot to be said. She might not have been that good. No. Um, <laughs> following a brief period with the Argyle and, and Suther uh, Sutherland Highlanders in, in Iverness, Nielsen was selected to cook for the Queen's Royal Guard before, in 19, January 1971, being reassigned to serve as a cook for a different regiment in the Shetland Highlands, where he ended his 11-year military career at the rank of corporal in October of 1972. God, he, 11 years he only made corporal? Well, you got to imagine that that particular MOS probably didn't leave for a lot of room for advancement. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess back in then, I suppose. I mean, and on top of that, I mean, you look at the numbers of the people that he was design, assigned to cook for, he probably didn't have a lot of people over him or under him. Yeah. Um, between October and December of 72, Nielsen lived with his family as he considered his next career move. Uh, career move. On more than one occasion in the three months Nielsen lived in uh, Shriekland, his mother voiced her opinion as to her being more concerned with his lack of female companionship than his career path and of her desire to see him marry and start a family. On one occasion, Nielsen joined his older brother, Olaf Jr., his sister-in-law, and another couple to watch a documentary about gay men. All present viewed the topic with derision, except Nielsen, who ardently spoke in defense of gay rights. A fight ensued, ensued after which Olaf Jr. informed his mother that Dennis was gay. Nielsen never spoke to his older brother again and maintained only sporadic written contact with his mother, stepfather, and younger siblings. He decided to join the Metropolitan Police and moved to London in December to begin the training course. Now, in April of 73, Nielsen completed his police training and was posted to Wildeson Green. Still a cadet and junior constable, he performed several arrests, but never had to physically subdue a member of the public. Nielsen enjoyed the work, but missed the uh, comradeship of the, army, uh, of the Army. He began to drink alone in the evenings. During the summer and autumn of 73, Nielsen began frequenting gay pubs and engaged in several casual liaisons with men 
he viewed these encounters as soul-destroying liaisons in which he would only lend his partner his body in a vain search for inner peace. Jesus. And he sought a lasting relationship. In August, following a failed relationship, Nilsson came to the conclusion that his personal lifestyle was at odds with his job. His birth father died the same month, leaving each one of his children 1,000 pounds, the equivalent of about 9,693 pounds as of 2022. In December, Nielsen resigned from the police. Between December of 73 and May of 74, he worked as a security guard. The work was intermittent, and he resolved to find more stable, secure employment. He found work as a civil servant in May 1974. He was initially posted to a job center in Denmark Street, where his primary role was to find employment for unskilled laborers. At his workplace, Nielsen was known to be a quiet, conscientious employee who was active in the trade union movement. His attendance record was mediocre, although he frequently volunteered to work overtime, leading several colleagues to suspect he was something of a loner. In 79, Nielsen was appointed acting executive officer. He was officially promoted to the position of of executive officer with additional supervisory responsibilities in June of 1982 and transferred to another job center in Kentish Town, continuing his job until his arrest. Now, uh, in November 1975, Nelson encountered a 20-year-old man named David Glint, uh, Gallantron. Gallantron? Gallicon. Gallicon. Being uh, treated out, uh, threatened outside a pub by two other men, Nelson inter- uh, intervened in the altercation and took Gallahan into his room at 80th uh, Treadmouth Road in the uh, Crickle Woods district in North London. The two men spent the evening drinking and talking. Nelson uh, learned that Gallahan had recently moved to London from uh, Weston Supermire, Somerset, uh, was gay, unemployed, and resided in a hostel. Uh, the fel- following mor- morning, both men agreed to live together in a lo- in a large residence. And Nelson, using part of his inheritance, uh, inheritance bequeathed to it uh, by his father, immediately resolved to find a larger property. Several days later, the pair view- uh, viewed a vacant uh, ground floor flat at uh, 195th uh, Melrose Avenue, also in uh, Cricklewood. And they decided to move into the property prior to moving to uh, Melrose Avenue. Nelson negotiated a deal with the landlord whereby he and Galligan had uh, exclusive use of the garden in the rear of the property. The flat was supposed to be furnished, but upon moving in, the pair found it to be largely uh, barren. Over the following months, the couple redecorated and furnished the entire flat. Much of this uh, work was performed by Galligan, as Nelson, uh, having discovered Galligan's lack of employment ambitions, began to view himself as the uh, breadwinner of the relationship. Eh. Nelson uh, later uh, uh, recollected that he was uh, sexually attracted to Galligan, but the uh, two uh, seldom had intercourse. And else, uh, initially, 
Nelson experienced a domestic uh, contentment with Galligan. But within a year of them moving into Melrose, uh, Melrose Avenue, the superficial relationship between the two men began to uh, show signs of strain. They slept in separate beds and both began to bring home casual sex partners. Galligan later insisted Nelson had never been uh, violent towards him, but that he did engage in verbal abuse and the pair had begun arguing increasing, increasingly frequent, frequently by uh, early of 1976. Uh, Nelson later stated that following a heated argument, in May 1977, he demanded Galligan leave the residence. Galligan later informed investigators that he had chosen to end the relationship. So he didn't die because he got busy with him. Uh, Nelson formed a brief relationship with several other young men over the following 18 months. One of these relationships lasted more than a few weeks, and none of the men expressed any uh, invitation of living with him on a yeah. basis. By late 1978, Nelson was uh, living a solitary ex uh, existence. He had experienced at least three failed relationships in the uh, previous 18 months. He later confessed uh, to having developed an increasing conviction that he was unfit to live with. Throughout 1978, he devoted uh, an in ever-increasing amount of his time, effort, and a soldiery uh, to his work and most evenings he spent consuming spirits and or larger uh, lager as he listened to music between 1978 and 1983 nelson is known uh, to have killed a minimum of 12 men and boys and to have a uh, attempt to kill several others he initially confessed in 1983 to having killed about 16 victims. The majority of Nelson's victims were homeless homeless or gay men. Would, would it be like homeless gay men or just gay men? I guess homeless men don't need, need to make okay, no, Just like with anything in this society nowadays, you have to be specific. Just like you can't just have an American. You got to have an white American or an African American or an Asian American everybody's got to have labels and it's just like this insane pronoun crap that they've got going on these days and it's just like even teachers in the state of texas they can't address a child by a pronoun yeah i wouldn't care i, I hate that stuff too uh but uh where was i at uh oh, oh yeah there we go uh, other were homosexual people he typically met it in bars on public uh, transportation and on one occasion outside his home. All of Nelson's murders were committed out inside the two North London addresses where he resided and the years he had is known to have killed. His victims were lured to the addresses through guile, typically the offer of alcohol or shelter. Inside Nelson's home, the victims were usually given food and alcohol, then strangled, typically with linen. Lin what? 
ligature ligature uh either to death or until they have been unconscious conscious if the victim had been strangled into unconsciousness nelson then drowned drowned him in the bathtub his sink or bucket of water before observing the a wow. ritual in which he bathed clothed and re, re retain the bodies inside his residence for several weeks and occasionally months before he dismembered them. Each victim killed between 1978 and 1981 at his uh, Crockwood residence was disposed of by, uh, by a burning upon a bonfire prior to uh, their dissection. Nelson removed their entered organs, which he disposed of either beside a furnace behind his flat or closed to Granston Park. The victims killed in 1982 to 1983 at his Muswell Hill uh, residence were retained at his flat with their fresh and smaller bones flushed down the the, uh, toilet. Nelson admitted to engaging in masturbation as he viewed the new bodies of several of his victims and he was having engaging in sexual acts with six of his victims body but was admitted that he had never penetrated any of his victims well that's great that he never penetrated oh my god some some sometimes i'm i'm reading these things and i'm like real really that that's your that's your limit that's what you're you're gonna sign off to the parents and everything. Mm-hmm. All right, so I lost track where you're at. Where are you? Where are you uh, one hundred ninety fifth Melrose Avenue. Okay, so Nelson killed. Yeah, that that's exactly what you thought it was. Okay, uh, Nelson killed his first victim, fourteen year old Stephen Holmes, on thirty December nineteen seventy eight. Holmes encountered Nelson in the uh, Cricklewood Arms pub, where Holmes had unsuccessfully attempted to purchase alcohol. According to Nelson, he had been drinking heavily alone on the day he met Holmes before deciding in the evening that he must at all costs leave his flat and seek company. Nelson invited Holmes to his house with the promise of the two drinking alcohol and listening to music, believing him to be approximately 17 years old. At Nelson's home, both he and Holmes drank heavily before they fell asleep. The following morning, Nelson woke to find uh, the sleeping Holmes beside him on his bed. In his subsequent written confessions, Nelson stated he was afraid to wake him in case he left me. After caressing the sleeping youth, Nelson decided Holmes was to stay with me over the New Year, uh, New Year whether he wanted to or not. Reaching for a necktie, Nielsen straddled Holmes as he strangled him into um, unconsciousness before drowning the teenager in a bucket filled with water. Nielsen then washed the body in his bathtub before placing Holmes on his bed and caressing his body. He twice masturbated over the body before awaiting the passing of Ritter Mortis to enable him to stow the corpse below his or beneath his floorboards. Holmes' bound corpse remained beneath the floorboards for almost eight months before Nelson built a bonfire in the garden behind his flat and burned the body on August 11, 1979. Reflecting on his killing spree in 83, Nelson stated that having killed Holmes, I caused dreams which caused death. 
this is my crime, adding that he had started down the avenue of death in possession of a new kind of flatmate. On October 11th, 79, Merson attempted to murder a student from Hong Kong named Andrew O, whom he had met in a St. Martin's Lane pub and lured to his flat on the promise of sex. Nielsen attempted to strangle Huddle, who managed to flee from his flat and reported the incident to police. Nielsen was questioned in relation to the incident, but Huddle decided not to press charges. And after two months, or two months after the attempted murder of Huddle on 3 December of 79, Nielsen encountered a 23-year-old Canadian student named Kenneth Ogden. Uh, Ogden. That's what I'm going with, whether it be. Who had been on a tour of England visiting relatives. Nelson encountered Ogden as they both drank in a West End pub. Upon learning the young man was a tourist, Nelson offered to show Ogden several London landmarks, an offer of which Ogden accept, uh, accepted. Nelson then invited the student to his house in the promise of a meal and further drinks. The pair stopped off at an uh, off license, stopped at an off license, which for those of you keeping score at home, an off-license is a liquor store. So, there, there you go. Um, and we're out to Nielsen's residence and purchased whiskey, rum, and beer. That sounds like a good time. Without mm-hmm. um, insisting on sharing the bill. Nielsen was adamant that he could not recall the precise moment he strangled Ogden, but recalled that he strangled the young man with the cord of his headphones as Ogden listened to music. He also recalled dragging Ogden across his floor with the wire wrapped around his neck as he strangled him before pouring himself a glass of rum and continuing to listen to music on the headphones of which he had just strangled Ogden. Following day, Nelson promised a Polaroid, or purchased a, a Polaroid camera and photographed Ogden's body in various of its suggestive positions. He then laid Ogden's corpse spread eagle above him on his bed as he watched television for several hours before wrapping the body in plastic bags and storing the corpse beneath the floorboards. On approximately four occasions over the following fortnight, Nielsen was disinterred and disinterred Ogden's body from beneath his floorboards and seated up the body upon his armchair alongside as he watched television and drank alcohol. Nelson killed his third victim, 16-year-old Martin Duffy, on 17 of May of 80. Duffy was a catering student from uh, Birkenhead, Merseyside, who had hitchhiked to London without his parents' knowledge. And on 13 May, he, after being questioned by a British transport police for evading his train fare, for, for four days, Duffy had uh, slept off near... Postern Railway Station before Nelson encountered the youth as he returned from a union conference in Southport. Duffy Nelson, recall a recollected, was both exhausted and hungry, and eventually he accepted Nelson's offer of a meal and a bed for the evening. After the youth had fallen asleep in Nelson's bed, Nelson fashioned a ligature around his neck and then simultaneously sat on Duffy's chest and tightened the ligature with a great force. So basically, it's like um, like a tourniquet. Almost. Yeah. yeah. Um, Wilson had held this grip until Duffy became unconscious. Then he dragged the youth into his kitchen and drowned him in his sink before bathing the body, which he recalled as being the youngest looking I'd ever seen. Duffy's body was first placed upon a kitchen chair, then upon the bed, which he had been strangled. 
the body was repeatedly kissed, complimented, and caressed by Nielsen both before and after he had masturbated while sitting upon the stomach of the corpse. For two days, Duffy's body was stowed in the cupboard with poor Nielsen noted signs of building, therefore, he went straight under the floorboards. Following Duffy's murder, Nielsen began to kill with increasing, uh, increasing frequency. By the end of 1980, he killed further five victims and attempted to murder one other. Only one of these victims from Nielsen murdered 26 year old William Sutherland has ever been identified. Nielsen's recollections of the unidentified victims were vague, but he graphically recalled how each victim had been murdered and just how long the body had been retained before dissection. One unidentified victim killed in November had moved his legs in a cycling uh, motion as he was strangled. Nelson is known to have abstained himself from work between 11 and 18 November, likely due to this particular murder. Another unidentified victim, Nelson had unsuccessfully attempted to resuscitate before sink, uh, sinking his knees, or to his knees and sobbing before uh, standing to expressly spit at his own image as he looked at himself in the mirror. On another occasion, he had lain in bed alongside the body of another unidentified victim as he listened to the classical theme, Fanfare for the Common Man, before bursting into tears. Inevitably, the accumulated bodies beneath Nielsen's floorboards attracted insects and created a foul odor, particularly throughout summer months. And on, on occasions, Nielsen disinterred victims from beneath the floorboards. He noted that the bodies were covered with papae and infested with maggots, some victims' heads had maggot maggots falling out of eye sockets and mouths. He placed deodorants beneath the floorboards and sprayed insecticide about the flat twice daily. But the odor of decay and presence of flies remained. In late 1980, Nielsen removed and dissected the bodies of each victim killed since December of 79 and burned them upon a communal bonfire he had constructed on a wasteland behind his flat. To disguise the smell of burning flesh of the six of the six dissected bodies placed upon his pyre, Wilson crowned the bonfire with an old car tire. Their neighborhood children stood to watch this particular bonfire, and Wilson later wrote in his memoirs that he felt it would have seemed in order if he had seen these uh, if he had seen these three children dancing around a mass funeral pyre. When the bonfire had been reduced to ashes and cinders, Nielsen used the rake to search the debris for any recognizable bones. Nothing, noting soul was still intact, he smashed it into pieces with his rake. On or about 4 January of 1981, Nielsen encountered an unidentified man who he described for investigators as an 18 year old blue eyed young Scott at the Golden Lion Club in Soho. He was lured to Melrose Avenue upon the promise of partaking in a drinking contest. After Nielsen and his victim had consumed several beverages, Nielsen trailed him with a tie and subsequently placed the body beneath the floorboards. Nielsen is known to have informed his employers he was ill and unable to attend work until January and knew that he could dissect his, both his victim and another unidentified victim who had killed approximately one third. By April, Nielsen had killed two further unidentified victims, one of whom he described as an English skinhead whom he had met in Leicester Square. The other he described as a Belfast boy, a man in his early 20s, approximately five foot in length, whom he had murdered sometime in February. In relation to the first of these three unidentified victims, he later casually reflected 
into the day, into the drink, into the person. Billboards back, carpet replaced, and back to work at Denmark Street. The following month, Nielsen removed the internal organs of several victims stowed beneath the floorboards. He discarded these innards built upon the waste room behind his flat and in his house full of rubbish. The final victim to be murdered at Melrose Avenue was 23-year-old Malcolm Barlow, whom Nielsen discovered slumped against the wall outside his home on the 17th December of 1981. When Nielsen inquired as to Barlow's welfare, he was informed the medication that Barlow was prescribed for his epilepsy had caused his legs to weaken. Nielsen suggested that Barlow should be in hospital and supporting him walking to his residence before calling for an ambulance. The following day, Barlow was released from the hospital and returned to Nielsen's home apparently to thank him. He was invited in, and after eating a meal, began drinking rum before falling asleep on the sofa. Nielsen manly strangled Barlow as he slept before stowing the body beneath his kitchen sink the following morning. In mid 1981, Nielsen's landlord decided to renovate 195 Melrose Avenue and asked Nielsen to vacate the property. Nielsen was initially resistant to the proposal, but accepted an offer of a thousand pounds from the landlord to vacate the residence. He moved into an attic flat or attic flat at 23D Cranley Gardens in Northwell Hill District in North London on 5 October 1981. The day before he vacated the property, Nielsen burned the dissected bodies of the last five victims he had killed at this address. Upon a third and final bonfire, he constructed in the garden behind his flat. Again, Nielsen ensured the bonfire was crowned with a made card tire to disguise the smell of burning flesh. Nielsen had already dissected the bodies of four of, four of these victims in January and August, and needed only to complete the dissection of Barlow for his third bonfire. Now, on the 23rd of Cranian Gardens, uh, Nelson uh, had no access to a garden. And as uh, he resided uh, in the attic flat, he was encountered. He was unable to stow any of the bodies beneath the floorboards. For most of the two, uh, for almost two months, uh, an acquaintance Nelson encountered uh, and lured to his flat were not assaulted in any manner. Although he did attempt to strangle a 19-year-old student named Paul Nubbs on the 23rd of November, 1981, but he stopped himself from completing the act. In March, 1982, Nelson encountered 23-year-old John Howlett while drinking in a pub near Lancaster uh, Square. Howlett was lured uh, to Nelson's flat and uh, on the promise of uh, continuing drinking at Nelson's. There, both Nelson and Howlett uh, drank as they watched a film before uh, Howlett uh, walked into Nelson's front room and fell asleep in, uh, in his bed, which was located in the front room at the time. An hour later, Nelson unsus uh, unsuccessfully attempted to rouse Howlett when uh, then sat on the edge of the bed drinking rum as he star uh, stared at Howlett for uh, before deciding to kill him. Following a uh, furious struggle in which Howlett himself attempted to strangle his attacker, Nelson strangled Howlett into unconsciousness with an uh, upholstered strap before returning to a, a living room. Shaking from the stress of the struggle in which he had believed that he had uh, he would uh, be overpowered, 
On three occasions over the following 10 minutes, Nelson unsuspectingly attempted to kill the victim uh, after nothing he had his resumed, uh, resumed breathing before deciding to uh, fill his tub with water and drown him. For over a week uh, following Hallett's uh, murder, Nelson's own neck bore the victim's fingerprints and uh, impressions. In May 1982, Nelson's encounter Carl Studer, a 21-year-old uh, gay man, as a young uh, as the young man drank at the Black Cap pub in Candom. Nelson engaged uh, Carl in conversation, discovering he uh, he was depressed following the failed relationship after uh, prying him with alcohol. Nelson Valter, uh invited Carl to his flat, assuring his guests he had no intentional sexual activity. At the flat, Carl consumed further alcohol before falling asleep upon opening his uh, sleeping bag. He later awoke to find himself being strangled but with uh, Nelson loudly whispering, stay still. In his subsequently testament, uh, testimony at Nelson's trial, Shoulder stated he initially believed Nelson was trying to free him from the, uh, the zipper of the sleeping bag before he returned to a state of unconsciousness. He then vaguely recalled hearing water running before realizing he was immersed in the, in the water and that Nelson was attempting to drown him. After briefly uh, succeeding in ri rising his head above the water, uh, Stroder uh, gasped the words, no more, please, no more, before Nelson again submerged uh, Schroeder head beneath the water. Believing he, uh, he had killed Stroder, Nelson stated the youth in his armchair when the no uh, then noted his Mongol dog bleep lick Stroder's face, Nelson realizing the tiniest thread of life still clung to the youth. He rubs uh, Scroder's limbs and heart increased uh, circulation covering the youth's body with a blanket, then laid uh, him upon his bed. When Stroder uh, regained consciousness, Nelson embraced him. He then explained to Stroder he had almost uh, strangled himself on the zipper of the sleeping bag, and he had res uh, resuscitated him. After falling two days, Schroeder repeatedly uh, lapsed in and out of consciousness. When Schroeder had regained enough strength to question Nelson as he, as to his recollection of being strangled and immersed in cold water, Nelson explained he had become caught in the zipper of the sleeping bag following a nightmare. I mean, that's got to be a freaking badass zipper uh, uh, sleeping bag. Well, you know, <clears throat> not to have. Um, I'm I'm never seen sleeping bag do that. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with fart sacks, man. There's really not. But you know, it's it's one of those situations where I feel bad for these victims. I do, but. Um,
two words could have prevented all of this? Stranger danger? Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Stranger danger. I mean, it's, it's not... It's not terribly outside the realm of the impossible to... Really? I mean, I've, I've had sleeping bags that... I mean, unless the cord was like probably around about a foot long, you know, the cord for the sleeping bag thing, that's the only way I can think of it. I mean, I've got my experience with sleeping bags from, you know, when I was a younger, you know, a kid in the Boy Scouts, but like most of my, fart, you know, most of my sleeping bag experience as an adult came in the form of a fart sack when I was in the army. Yeah, me too. You know, I mean, and the, and those cords, they, there's no cords on them. So, but I don't know, man. It it it. I don't know. All right. Uh, and about the uh, the cold water, you were in shock. Nelson led uh, Schroeder into the nearby railway station where he informed uh, the young man he ho uh, hoped they might meet again before uh, he bid him farewell. Three months after Nelson's uh, June 1982 promotion to the position of executive officer in his employment, he encountered 27-year-old uh, named Greg uh, Graham, Graham Allen attempting to hail a taxi in Strasburg Avenue. Shaftesbury. 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 Avenue. Alan accepted Nelson's offer to accompany him in Cranleary Gardens for a meal. As he had been in, uh, been the case of several prison victims, Nelson stated he could not recall the precise moment he had uh, strangled Alan, but recalled approaching him as he sat in, eating an omelet with the full intention of murdering him. Alan's body was retained into the bathtub for a total of three days before Nelson began to <clears throat> task of dissecting the body upon the kitchen floor. Nelson is again known to have informed his employers he was ill and unable to attend work on 9th of October 1982, likely in order that he could completely uh, complete the dissection of Alan's body. On the 26th, January 1983, Nelson killed his final victim, 20-year-old uh, uh, Stephen Sinclair, Sinclair uh, was last seen by acquaintances in the company of Nelson walking to the direction of the uh, tube station, which is basically a subway. Uh -huh. At Nelson's flat, Sinclair fell asleep in a drug and alcohol-induced stupor in the armchair as Nelson uh, sat listening to rock opera Tommy. I'm kind of curious. It's from The Who. Oh, okay. I, I thought I, I got up. Oh, I actually isn't that. Nelson approached Sinclair, knelt before him, and said, <clears throat> sounding himself, Oh, Stephen, here I go again. Uh, before strangling Sinclair with a uh, ligature uh, constructed with a necktie and rope. I don't know why. For some reason, we were talking about the who, 
And then when he quoted, and when quote unquote, oh, here I go, oh, Stephen, here I go again. I don't know why, but I hear White Snake playing in my head. I do this the same thing with me. I heard Night White Snake. It was so weird. I was like, here I go again. And we're doing oh, okay. Uh Nelson removed uh removed these uh to discover several deep slash marks uh from where Sinclair had recently tried to kill himself following the his usual ritual of uh bathing the body. Nelson laid Sinclair's body upon his bed, applying uh talcum powder to the body. Then arranged three mirrors around the bed before uh uh, before himself lying naked alongside the dead youth. Several hours later, he turned Stevens' uh, head towards him before kissing the youth's body on the forehead, saying, Good night, Stephen Nelson, then fell asleep alongside the body. As he had been in the case with both uh, Hollett and Allen, Sinclair's body was subsequently dissected. With various dismembered parts wrapped in plastic bags and stored in either a wardrobe, a tea chest, and within a, a drawer located beneath the bathtub, the bags used uh, to seal uh, seal ah, to seal Sinclair's remains were sealed. God Lord, were sealed with the uh, same crepe agates Nelson had found upon. Sinclair's wrist bandages. Okay, fuck. It's getting late. Nelson attempted to dis dispose of the flesh, uh, internal organs, and sm uh, smaller bones of all three victims killed at uh, Cannery uh, Gardens by flushing their disaffected uh, remains down the toilet. I can imagine trying to do that. I I can. I can actually. <laughs> While here in America. We yeah, toilets that, that they advertise can flush an entire bucket of golf balls at the same time. God, yeah, I know, right? And a practice, uh, practice which he had uh, conducted upon several victims killed in Melrose Avenue. He also boiled the head, hands, and feet, removed the flesh off of these uh, sections of the victim's body. On the 4th of February, 1983, Nelson wrote a letter of contempt to the complaint. state agents, a complaint to the state agencies complaining that the drains at the Canary Gardens were blocked and that uh, sanitation for both himself and other tenants at the property was intolerable. The following day, he refused to allow the acquaintance to enter his property, the reason being he had begun to dismember Sinclair's body on the floor of his kitchen. Now, for Nielsen's murders, uh, they were first discovered by a Donna Rod employee. Um, Donna Rod being a, um, a, uh, a well, it's an emergency drainage plumbing company in the UK. Um, so basically the plumbers figured it out. Um, the employee's name is Michael Catran, uh, who responded to the plumbing complaints made by both Nielsen and the tenants of the Cranley Gardens on February 8th of 83. Opening a drain cover at the side of the house, Catran discovered the drain was packed with a flesh-like substance and numerous small bones of unknown, unknown origin. 
Katran reported his suspicions to his supervisor, Gary Wheeler. Now, as Katran had arrived at the property at dusk, he and Wheeler agreed to postpone further investigation into the blockage until the following morning. Prior to leaving the property, Nielsen and fellow tenant Jim Alec convened with Katran to discuss the source of the substances. Now, upon hearing Katran exclaim how similar substance was in appearance to human flesh, Nielsen replied, it looks to me like someone has been flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken. Now, at 7.30 a.m. the following day, Katran and Wheeler returned to Cranley Gardens, by which time the drain had been cleared. This aroused the suspicions of both men. Katran discovered some scrapes of flesh and four bones in a pipe leading from the drain, which linked to the top flat of the house. To both Katran and Wheeler, the bones looked as if they originated from a human hand. Both men immediately called the police, who, upon closer inspection, discovered further small bones and scrapes of what looked like to the naked eye like either human or animal flesh in the same pipe. These remains were taken to the mortuary at Hornsby, or uh, Hornsey, where pathologist David Bowen advised police that the remains were human and that one particular piece of flesh he concluded had been from a human neck, bore a litigant mark. Learning, upon learning from fellow tenants that the top floor uh, that the top floor flat from where the human remains had been flushed belonged to Nielsen, Detective Chief Inspector Peter J. and two colleagues opted to wait outside the house until Nielsen returned home from work. When Nielsen returned home from work, DCIJ introduced himself and his colleagues, explaining that they had come to inquire about the blockage in the drains from his flat. Nielsen asked why the police were interested in his drains and whether and also whether or not the two officers present were with Jay were health inspectors. In response, Jay informed Nielsen that the other two were also police officers and requested access to his flat to discuss the matter further. The three officers followed Nielsen into his flat where they immediately noted the odor of rotting flesh. Nielsen questioned further as to why the police were interested in his drains to which he was informed the blockage had been caused by human remains. Nielsen feigned shock and bewilderment, stating, good grief, how awful. In response, Jay replied, don't mess about, where's the rest of the body? Nielsen responded calmly, admitted, admitting that the remainder of the body could be found in two plastic bags in a nearby wardrobe, from which DCI, Jay, and his colleagues noted the overpowering smell of decomposition emanating. The officers did not open the cupboard, but bags in a nearby wardrobe. Uh, or uh, the but asked Nielsen whether there were any other body parts to be found. To which Nielsen replied, "It's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want to get it off my chest, not here, but at the police station." He was then arrested in caution on suspicion of murder before being taken to uh, Hornsey Police Station. While en route to the police station, Nielsen was asked whether the remains in his flat belonged to one person or two. Staring out the window of the police car, he replied, 15 or 16 since 1978. That evening, Detective Superintendent Chambers, accompanied by DCIJ and Bowen to Cranley Gardens, where the plastic bags were removed from the, gar uh, from the wardrobe and taken to Hornsby of Mortuary. One bag was found to contain two dissected torsos, one of which had been vertically dissected in a shopping bag containing various internal organs. The second bag contained a human skull, almost completely devoid, devoid of flesh, a severed head, 
and a torso with arms attached but hands missing. Both heads were found to have been subjected to moist heat. Now, in an interview conducted on the 10th of February, Nielsen confessed that there were further human remains stowed in a tea chest in his living room. With the other remains inside an upturned drawer in his bathroom, the dismembered body parts were the bodies of three men, all of whom he had killed by strangulation, usually with a necktie. One victim he could not name, another he knew only as John the Guardsman, and the third he identified as Stephen Sinclair. He also stated that beginning in December of 1978, he had killed 12 or 13 men at his former address, 195 Melrose Avenue. Nelson also admitted to having unsuccessfully kill, uh, attempting, or attempted to kill approximately seven other people who, he, who had either escaped or on one occasion had been at the brink of death, but had been revived and allowed to leave his residence. A further search for additional remains at Cranley Gardens on 10 February revealed the lower section. Could you section imagine that? So. I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. Could you imagine that? Uh, going out and uh, and just, oh, my God, you won the prize. You get, yeah. you get, to, you get to walk away. Right. Um, now, a further search for additional remains at Cranley Gardens on 10 February revealed the lower section. Uh, I just read that. Da, 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 da. Okay, no, here we go. Um, revealed a lower section of a torso and two legs stowed in a bag in the bathroom and a skull and a section of a torso and various bones in the tea chest. The same day, Nielsen accompanied police to Melrose and, uh, Avenue, where he indicated the three uh, three locations in the rear garden where he had where he had burned the victims or burned the remains of his victims. Katran contacted the Daily Mirror on 10 February, informing the newspaper of the ongoing search for human remains at Cranley Gardens, leading the newspaper to break the story and spark intense national media interest. Now, by February 11th, reporters from the Mirror had obtained photographs from Nielsen's mother in Aberdeenshire, which appeared on the front page the following day. Under English law, the police had 48 hours in which to charge Nielsen or release him, assembling the remains of the victims killed at Cranley Gardens on the floor of Hornsby's mortuary. Professor Bowen, or Bowen was able to confirm the fingerprints on one body matched those on police files of Sinclair. At 5.40 p.m. on 11 February, Nielsen was charged with Sinclair's murder, and a statement revealing this was released to the press. A formal questioning of Nielsen began the same evening, with Nielsen agreeing to be represented by a solicitor, um, which solicitor is basically kind of like um, the lawyer. Yeah, it's um, it's England words for the lawyer. It's, it, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a public defender. Yeah. Okay. Um, Um, he had later declined, uh, or it earlier he had uh, he had declined um, a solicitor. Now, police interviewed Nielsen on sixteen separate occasions over the following days on in interviews which totaled over thirty hours. Now, Nielsen was adamant that he was uncertain as to why he had killed, simply saying, "I'm hoping you will tell me that." When asked his motive for the murders, he was adamant that. The decision to kill was not made until moments before the act of murder. Now, most victims had died by strangulation. And on several occasions, he had drowned the victims once they had been strangled into unconsciousness. 
But once the victim had been killed, he typically bathed the victim's body, shaved any hair from the torso to conform it to his physical ideal, and then applied makeup to any obvious blemishes upon the skin. The body was usually dressed in socks and underpants. Now, before Nielsen draped the victims around him as he walked, as he talked to the corpse, with most victims, Nielsen masturbated as he stood alongside or knelt above the body, and Nielsen confessed to having occasionally engaged in intercurial sex. Now, it's also known as coitus interfemoris, which is thigh sex and interfemoral sex. Um, it's a non-penetrative type of sex, so basically he just made a sandwich. That's what he did. Um, but repeatedly stressed to investigators that he had never actually penetrated his victims, explaining that his victims are too perfect and beautiful for the pathetic ritual of commonplace sex. All the victims' personal possessions were destroyed following the ritual of bathing their bodies in an effort to obliterate their identity prior to their murder and now becoming what Nielsen described as a prop in his fantasies. In several instances, he talked to the victims' bodies as it remained seated in a chair or prone on his bed as he recalled being emotional and marveled at the beauty of their bodies with reference to one victim, Kenneth Ogden. Nielsen noted that Ogden's body and skin were very beautifully, or were very beautiful, adding the sight almost brought me to tears. Another unidentified victim had been so emaciated that he had simply been discarded over the, uh, under the floorboards. Now, the bodies of the victims killed at his previous address were kept for as long as de decomposition would allow. Upon noting any major signs of decomposition in a body, Nielsen stowed it beneath the floorboards. Now, if a body did not display signs of decomposition, he occasionally alternately stowed it beneath the floorboards and retrieved it before again masturbating as he stood over and laid alongside the body. Makeup again was applied to enhance its appearance and to obscure blemishes. When questioned as to why the heads found at Cranley Gardens had been subjected... Honest. Is that you or me? I don't need my Siri to... I need her to go away. There we go. Um, that's that, that was weird. That was. You heard that, right? Yeah. Like, wait, on it. What? I thought maybe we had cut off again. Um, Nielsen stated that he had frequently boiled the heads of his victims in a large cooking pot on his stove so that the internal contents evaporated, thus removing the need to dispose of the brain and flesh. Now, the torsos and limbs of the three victims killed at this address were dissected within about one week of their murder before being wrapped in plastic bags and stowed in the three locations he had indicated to police. The internal organs and smaller bones he flushed down the toilet. This practice, which had led to his arrest, had only been had been the only method he would consider to dispose of the internal organs as soft tissue as, unlike at Melrose Avenue, he had no exclusive use of the garden of the property. Now, Melrose Avenue, Nielsen typically retained the victims' bodies for a much longer period before disposing of the remains. He kept three or four bodies stowed beneath the floorboards before he dissected the remains, which would, he would wrap up inside plastic bags and either return under the floorboards or, in two instances, placed inside suitcases, which had been left at the property by a previous tenant. The remains stowed inside suitcases. Those of Ogden and Duffy were placed inside a shed in the rear garden and were disposed of upon the second bonfire Nielsen had constructed at Melrose Avenue. Other dissected remains, minus the internal organs, were returned beneath the floorboards or placed upon a bonfire he had constructed in the garden. 
and Nielsen confirmed that on four occasions he had removed the accumulated bodies from beneath his floorboards and dissected the remains. And on three of these occasions, he had then disposed of the accumulated remains as an, upon an assembled bonfire. On more than one occasion, he had removed the internal organs from the victim's bodies and placed them in bags, which he then typically dumped behind a fence to be eaten by a wildlife. All, the body, all of the bodies of the victims killed at Melrose Avenue were dismembered after several weeks or months of internment beneath the floorboards. And Nielsen recalled that the putrefaction of these bodies, of these victims' bodies, made this task exceedingly vile. He recalled having to fortify his nerves with whiskey and having to grab handfuls of salt with which to brush aside maggots from the remains. Often, he vomited as he dissected the bodies before wrapping the dismembered limbs inside plastic bags and carrying the remains to the bonfires. Nonetheless, Immediately prior to his uh, dissecting victim, uh, the victim's bodies, Nielsen masturbated as he knelt or sat alongside the corpse. This, he stated, was his symbolic gesture of saying goodbye to the victims. When questioned as to whether he had any remorse for his crimes, Nielsen replied, I wish I could stop, but I couldn't. I had, another, I had no other thrill or happiness. He also emphasized that he took no pleasure from the act of killing, but worshipped the art and the act of death. On 11th February 1983, Nelson officially charged with the murder of Stephen Sinclair. He was transferred to HMP Brixton to be held uh, on remains until his trial. According to Nelson, upon transferring the Brixton uh, prison... Uh, awaited trial. His mood was one of uh, res uh, res resignation and relief with his belief being that he would uh, be viewed in accordance with the law, having to wear a prison uniform and mm -hmm. that he How was that? Okay. Uh Having to wear a prison uniform, he was interrupted uh, to the branches of prison rules. Nelson threatened to protest against the remaining conditions by re uh, refusing to wear any clothes. As a result of this tr uh, threat, he was not allowed to leave his cell. On August 1st, Nelson threw his contents of his chamber, uh, uh, chamber pot out of his cell, hitting several prison officers. This incident resulting in Nelson's uh, being found guilty on August 9th of assaulting prison officers and subsequently spending 65 days in solitary confinement. On the 26th, uh, May 26th, Nelson was committed to a standard trial at O'Benley, Bailey, on five counts of murder and two uh, attempted murder. A sixth murder charge was later added throughout the uh this communal hearing he was represented by a, a solicitor named ronald moss whom he had previously dismissed in legal representation on uh april 21st before moss was re uh, reappointed to the role after nelson had complained to the magistrate he had been afforded no facilities with which he had mounted his own defense Moss, who uh, was to remain Nelson's legal representation until July 1983, when Nelson again expressed his intention to defend himself, discharging him 
until uh fifth of uh, August fifth, uh, when Nelson once again reappointed Moss. Initially, Nelson intended to plead guilty to each charge of murder at his upcoming trial. With Nelson fully uh, content, Moss had fully prepared his defense. Five weeks before his trial, Nelson again dismissed Moss and often said to represent, uh, be represented by Ralph Helms. Upon whose uh, advice Nelson agreed to plead not guilty by dismiss, dismiss, diminished responsibility, diminished response. I got that right. Diminished responsibility. Diminished. Yeah, diminished. Uh, I just can't diminished. say the word correctly. Yeah, Nelson was brought to trial. Nelson was brought to trial on October 24, 1983, charged with six counts of murder and two attempted murder. He was tried at the Old Bailey before Mr. Justice Chrome Johnson and, ple- and pleaded guilty to- on all charges. The pro- uh, primary dispute between the prosecution and defense counsel was not whether Nelson had killed the victims, but his state of mind before and during the killing. The prosecution and uh, counsel, Alan Green QC. What's a QC? Oh, Queen's counsel. Well, basically the judge, I guess. Uh, argued that Nelson was sane and in full uh, control of his action and he had killed with premeditation. The defense counsel, uh, Ivan Lawrence QC, argued that Nelson suffered from diminished responsibility retaining him and capable of forming the intent to commit murder and should therefore be convicted only of manslaughter slaughter the prosecution counsel opened the case for the crown by describing the events of february 1983 leading to the identification of the human remains in the drains at uh, Crowley Gardens and Nelson's subsequently uh, subsequently uh, subsequently arrest the, the discovery of three di- disemboweled bodies on in his property his dis- uh, disdained confession his lead investigators to the uh, charred bone fragments of 12 uh, 12 fourth victims killed at Milrose Avenue and the efforts he had taken to conceal his crimes and a tactful reference to the primary disputes between opposing counsel at the trial. Green closed his opening speech with an answer Nelson had given the police in response to the question as to whether he needed to kill. At the precise moment of the act of murder, I believe I'm right in doing the act. Uh, to counteract this argument, Green added, the Crown says that even if there was mentally ab- abnormally that was not sufficiently to diminish substantially his responsibility to the killings. The first witness of, uh, to testify in the uh, prosecution was uh, Dennis Stewart, who testified that in November 1980, he fell asleep in the in, in a chair in Nelson's flat, only to be waking up, uh, finding his ankles bound to the chair, and Nelson uh, stringing him with his uh, with a tie as he pressed his knee into ch- in his chest. 
successfully overpowering Nestle, uh, Nelson, man, I can't get his name right again. Neeson. Mm-hmm. Nelson. Nelson. God. It's it, it, that time of night. Uh, Stewart testified that uh, Nelson had to shout, take my money. This is the prosecution, uh, prosecution arrested, reflecting Nelson's uh, rotation. Cool presence of mind in that he hoped to be overheard by other ten, uh, tenants. Upon leaving Nelson's residence, Stewart had reported the attack to the police who uh, turned questioned Nelson. Uh, noting conflicted details in the accounts given by both men, police had dismissed the incidents as a lover's quarrel. Upon a close uh, cross-examination, the defen- uh, defense counsel sought to undermine Stewart's credibility prior to uh, minor inconsistencies in his testimony. The fact he had consumed uh, much alcohol in the night in question and, uh, suggested his memory had been selectively mag- magnified as he previously sold his sor- uh, story to the press. On October 25th, the court heard testimony from two further men who had survived attempts by Nilly to strangle them. The first of these, Paul Nubbs, provided testimony in which the prosecution asserted uh, was uh, evidence of Nelson's self-control and the ability to refrain from homicide of impulses. As a university student, Nobbs testified that he accompanied Nelson to Cranberry Cranley Gardens for, uh, for alcohol and sex and woke in the early hours of the morning with a terrible headache. Upon washing his face in Nelson's bathroom, Nubbs noted his eyes were bloodshot and his face completely red. Nelson examined, uh, exclaimed, God, you look bloody awful. Nelson then advised the youth to see a doctor. Nobbs had not reported the attack to police for fear of his sexuality being discovered. Contrary to the prosecution's claims, the def- uh, defense counsel asserted that Nobbs' testimony reflected Nelson. Uh, rationally self-being unable to control his impulses. The fact Nelson had selected a university student as a potential victim was at odds with the prosecution claim that Nelson initially selected uh, rootless males who disappear was unlikely to be noted. Immediately after the testimony, Nobbs had concluded Carl Souter uh, took the stand to recount how, in May 1982, Nelson attempted to strangle and drown him before bringing him back to life. Shrouder's voice frequently quivered with emotion as he recounted uh, how Nelson had repeatedly attempted to drown him in the bathtub as he pleaded in uh, vain for his life to be spared, and how he later awoke to find Nelson's mongol dog licking his face on several occasions the judge had to allow Schroeder's time to gain his composure the evidence uh, provided by Schroeder was not included as part of the indictment against nelson as his whereabouts were not unknown uh, until after the indictment had been completed dci j when recounted the circumstances of Nelson's arrest and 
his claims of matter of fact confection before reading the uh, court's several statements volunteered by Nelson's followed the, his arrest. In one of these statements, Nelson had said, I have no tears for my victims. I have no tears for myself, nor do uh, those raved by my action. Good Lord. He just did not give no fucks. No, he didn't care. Um, I think, yeah, he didn't have any remorse. Um, he didn't have any joy in his life. He, see, and this is one of those situations where, you know, it wasn't bad parenting or, lazy police work or anything like that this guy genuinely just he was uh i don't know if i'm using the term correctly but he was sociopathic um he had no remorse he didn't he was indifferent to life or death um Do I think that nowadays would stuff like that be considered a red flag? Yeah, but with the way that society works and with all of these different groups trying to get inclusion in the alphabet gang. Well, look at what they uh, did with the uh, Jeffrey Dahmer on Netflix that just came out. Well, it yeah. said LB, uh, Q, R, all alphabets uh, plus. And they're like, why does that matter if he was gay in that show? Like, because he was what? And they had to take it down. That was ridiculous. But anyways. Yeah, I mean, it it, it was. (laughs) I'm sure that if somebody came out publicly as a necrophile. That they would be like, look, it's my sexual orientation. And the uh, the woke community would just be like, "Oh, well, come here, brother." Yeah, I mean, they're doing. You know, it's not. It's not until people start disappearing and and ending up in chunks and people's plumbing that it becomes a problem. Apparently, so. I mean, that's what they're trying to do with the freaking maps, and even the gay community are trying to get rid of those people. It's so sad. Uh, Jay admitted, uh, admitted it was unusual for anyone accused of such horrific crimes to be so forthcoming in his uh, providing information and conceal, uh, conceding upon questioning by defense counsel that Nelson not to be providing most of the evidence against, against him, but also encountering the discovery of evidence which could contract his own version of evidence. Following Jay's testimony, D.S. Chamber recited Nelson's uh, formal confession to the court. His testimony included graphic description of the riddle, rich, uh, ritualistic and sexual acts Nelson, uh, Nelson performed on his uh, victim's body. His very methods of storage of the bodies and body parts, dismemberment, disposal and the problems decomposition particularly regarding uh colonies of maggots afforded him 
several juries uh, were visibly uh, shaken throughout the testimony. Basically, they want to throw up. Uh, others looked at Nelson with incredulous expression on their faces as Nel- uh, Nelson listened to the testimony, uh, testimony, ah, testimony with apparent indifference. The testimony, God, I can't say that. Rumor now, testimony uh, lasted until the following morning, uh, morning when the prosecution included several and. Uh, inhabit inhabitants into evidence this included the cooking uh cooking pot in which nelson had boiled the heads and the vic uh and three victims killed in calorie gardens the cutting board he had used to dissect john hallowit and several i hate to tell you this right now but that picks up on the uh soundboard and everything Okay. <laughs> that, that's just funny. <laughs> I keep on hearing it. And several rusted coloring knives, which had been formerly belonging to the victim, Marty Duffy. Two psychologists testified on behalf of the defense. The first of these, uh, James McKeith, began his testimony on October 26. McKeith uh, testified as how, uh, as as to how throughout the lack of emotional development, Nelson experienced difficult expressions, any emotions other than his anger and his tendencies to to treat other human beings as components of his fantasy. The psychologist also described Nelson's association between unconscious bodies and sexual arousal, stating that Nelson uh, processed uh, narcissistic traits narcissistic yeah narcissistic uh traits and impaired these uh of identity and able to uh depersonalize other people he stated his uh conclusion that nelson displayed many signs of uh manipulative behavior the combination of which one and one man is lethal. The factors could be attributed to uns, uh, specific uh, mm, words, bad, unspecified personality disorder from which uh, McKeith believed Nelson suffered. In response to prosecution, content that in uh, attribute. At, mm, attributing attributing an unspecific disorder in uh, to nelson mckeith was undecided in his conclusion mckeith content that the unspecified uh personal disorder was severe enough to substantially reduce nelson's responsibility second psychologist to testify for the defense patrick gateway diagnosed nelson with a borderline false self as a free do normal pseudo pseudo normal a narcissistic personality disorder with occasionally outbreak of schizophrenia uh, disturbance disturbances that nelson uh managed most of the time to keep at bay galloway stated that 
in epizidic breakdowns, Nelson became uh, pre-dominic uh, schizoid. Act, uh, acting in an impulsive, violent, uh, violent and sudden manner. Gateway followed, added that someone suffering from these ep uh, episodes br breakdown is most likely to dis disencant. Mm. Disintegrate. Disintegrate uh, under circumstances of social isolation. In effect, mm -hmm. Nelson was not guilty of malice af uh, af afterthought upon cross-examination. Green largely focused upon the degree of awareness upon uh, shown by Nelson and and his ability to, uh, to make decisions. Galloway con conducted, conceded that Nelson was intellectually aware of his action, but stressed that due to his personal disorders, Nelson did not appreci uh, appreciate the criminal nature of what he had done. On October 31st, the prosecution called Paul uh, Bowden to testify in rebuttal of the psychologist who had testified for the defense prior to Nelson's trial, Bowden had interviewed the defendant on 16 separate occasions in their interview totaling over 14 hours. Over two days, Bowden testified that throughout uh, he found Nelson to be abnormal in a colonial sense. He had concluded Nelson to be a manipulative person who had been capable of forming relationships, but had uh, forced himself uh, objectifying people. Refuting the testimony of McKeith and Galloway, Bowden, uh, Bowden further testified he had found no evidence of manipulative behavior and that Nelson suffered uh, suffer from no disorder of the mind. Following the uh, closing arguments, both prosecution and defense, the jury retired to consider their verdict on the November 3rd, 1983. The following day, the jury returned with the majority verdict of guilty upon six counts of murder, one uh, attempted murder with uh, a not unanimous verdict of guilty in relation to the attempted murder of Nobs. Chrome Johnson's uh, sentencing uh, sentenced Nelson to life imprisonment with a recommendation that he served a minimum of 25 years imprisonment. Now, um, do we want to run through the imprisonment aftermath or do we just want to get right to the chase? Uh... No, because he basically uh, that that's pretty much of the verdict and everything like that. We need, we don't need to get in there in prison. Okay, so thing like that or the after moving forward either. in time, uh, his um, death on uh, May tenth, two thousand eighteen. Nelson had taken a HMP full uh, snooching in New York hospital after completing of several complaining of several stomach pains. He found to have ruptured. Uh, what the hell? Sorry. A subsequent okay, and at he had a ruptured aortic aneurysm, aortic aneurysm, which was repaired. 
Although he subsequently suffered a blood clot as a complication of the surgery, Nielsen died on 12th, uh, the 12th of May. Now, a subsequent post-mortem examination revealed that the immediate cause of his death was a pulmonary embolism and a retro perionatal or peritoneal, I know I just butchered that, hemorrhage. Now, his body was cremated in June of 2018, and a service was held with only five mourners present, including three prison, prison officers and the individual whom, with whom Nielsen had corresponded while in prison. No family members were present at the service, now in line with the Ministry of Justice's policy. Her Majesty, uh, her, her, uh, her Majesty's prison full Sutton paid £3,323 towards the cost of Nielsen's funeral, and his ashes were later handed to his family. Now, there are several artifacts from um, Nielsen's killing spree to include things like the tub, uh, the stove, certain pots and pans. Um, they are on display at the uh, Scotland Yard uh, Museum of Crime. Um, I, well, okay, if it's a museum of crime. Yeah, it's a museum. Now, with Scotland Yard, the way that they kind of do their museum, it's, it's more of a... Um, it's more of a learning institution than it is like a public museum. And while it functions the same way, they use it more of a learning tool than anything else. So think of Scotland Yard as England's version of the FBI. Yeah. So, but that's pretty much end of this episode, everybody. I mean, uh, he ended up just dying in prison, so, which I'm happy about, but he... Man, they they had yeah for for people like that to loose out on the streets of the world. It's um yeah, it's it's kind of it's hard to digest now. Is there a lesson to be learned from it? I'm sure that there is, um, but it would take, I mean, on, 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 on face value, it's, you know, don't, don't go home with strangers. I say that and we live in a, we go to the bars and we pick up women and the chances of either one of us dying throughout the nights. What what's really strange though, is I started actually looking at the statistics of like killers and everything like that. And uh, it's like 1%, not even, probably not even that. It's a little bit lower of you dying, but it, it's still possible. But it's very low, especially with like silly or killers. But uh, on that note, uh, we'll go ahead and uh, close out this episode, everybody. And uh, thank you for listening and watching us. Uh, figuring out uh johnny's little uh part of the world working his out we'll we'll figure out the audio on my side dude Um, as soon as you took off the headsets perfectly fine well that's because i'm using the onboard stuff oh i mean i've got all this equipment here that i need to use and so it's yeah we'll just figure out together later on 
But anyway, I'm David Dickerman, everybody. I'm Johnny Skelton. Thanks for playing along. Yeah, thank you for all playing along. Till next time.